you have a Bible, uh, let me encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 6. Um, there's Bibles on the seats or there's some in the bag. I would encourage you to have that in front of you. Um, both so you can move, we're moving around a little bit around Romans, uh, but also just so you can see that what I'm saying comes from the authority of Scripture and not myself. <coughs> Romans chapter uh, 6, verses 1 to 5. I'm just going to read those verses and then we'll see what the Lord would have to say to our lives. Hear the word of the living God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a re resurrection like his uh, as well. So this, this morning, uh, we're beginning a, a mini-series, a three-week series, uh, considering uh, what baptism, membership, and the Lord's Supper are. We're thinking about what those mean in connection to Jesus, our relationship with him, but also the significance that they have when it comes to being connected to the, to the life of the church. So this series is called Belong, Belonging to Christ's Body, the Church. Belonging to Jesus goes hand in hand with belonging to his gathered, his universal and then gathered local church. The church that this church was planted out of, Harvest Glasgow, we used to attend there. And back around 2015, 2016, we used to meet in the, the Father and Gay Centre uh, in the south side of Glasgow. And we used to do our baptisms out the front end of Haddingpole, uh, in the Maxwell area of south of Glasgow. And so uh, whenever we did this, all the residents uh, in the tenements nearby could see what was happening. Uh, one time we were baptising people outside of the Haddingpole and someone went on to the community Facebook group. Uh, they tagged our church in it and said, someone call the police. Uh, the people across the road are drowning people uh, in a paddling pool. Now, of course, they were joking. Uh, I'm, they maybe had some idea uh, of, of what we were doing there. Uh, but it's a, it's a helpful point. It's a good point, isn't it? Why do we baptize people? Why do we uh, put people into water? Why does the church do this? Why has the church done this uh, throughout its history? What is it all about? Seems strange to those outside, but why do we do this? Well, Romans 6 this morning gets right to the heart of the answer to that question. What is baptism? What is it all about? What does it mean? What is its significance? If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're baptized, this morning is meant to help you recognize the significance and the meaning that your baptism has for your life. And not just when it happened back then, but what is its ongoing present significance for you? If you profess faith in Jesus, but then you're not baptized, then my prayer this morning is that you would consider uh, why you should get baptized. Uh, and as elders, we'd love to help you consider what that would look like. What does this mean for us at church this morning? Well, the, the church is a baptized people. It's central to our identity. It's one of the key ways that Christians are marked out from the, from the world. It's how we're identified. So to be baptized into, the, into Jesus is to be baptized into his church. That means that at our baptism, we enter an eternal family, which is embodied in the form of a physical gathered church. 
And when it comes to our witness, baptism, as strange as it might seem to people looking in on the outside, is one of the key ways that we publicly profess and identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, and baptism does seem very strange to you, let me invite you to consider what baptism pictures here in Romans 6, to consider its meaning and significance, and to, to come to Jesus and experience freely the radical and eternal transformation that baptism symbolizes and pictures. So what's the, 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 the big aim here this morning as we as we gather around God's word? What, what does this Romans 6 press upon our hearts in response? It is this. Baptism signifies that I'm now free to live a new life in Jesus. Baptism signifies that I'm now free to live a new life in Jesus. So live as a baptized person. Live as a baptized person. The first thing we see together in Romans 6 is this. Baptism is a sign that in Jesus... I'm free to live a changed life. Okay, so we're going to primarily spend our time in Romans 6 this morning. Just a heads up, though, we are going to move around a little bit at the end just to bring some key aspects of the Bible's teaching into baptism. Romans 6, verse 1, though, that's where we are for now. If you look down, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a question that the Apostle Paul here in Romans is either received or he's anticipating people are asking him off the back of what he's just said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. If you look up just a little bit above chapter 6. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What he's essentially said in chapter 5, verse 20 is that you cannot out-sin God's grace. You cannot out-sin God's grace. God in his grace saves us completely from the, the penalty of sin, the wrath of God. No amount of sin is too big or, or too much to be covered by his forgiveness and grace. That's what he's saying here. So the question goes then, well, if I'm forgiven, if I experience grace, if I can't out-sin God's grace in Jesus, then once I'm saved, once I become a Christian, does that mean I can kind of just do what I want then? Does that make the gospel like this free pass that, that enables me to, to live how I want and as long as I present that free pass at the day of judgment, I, I'm fine. The Apostle Paul in verse 2 says, no, no, by no means. Grace doesn't give us a license for lawlessness. By no means. How can we die to sin still live in it? He's saying there we have died to something. Something has changed in us. Something should change in us. We should change. The moment when God's Spirit gives us a new heart, it, it regenerates us, to use biblical language, upon repentance of sin and faith in Christ, we are free from the power and the control of sin. We see that uh, in Romans 6, further down, verse 6, it says we're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer slaves. In verse 7, it says we've been set free from sin, the freedom we were just singing about. Verse 14, sin no longer has dominion over us. It doesn't control us. That's what we were before Christ. We were enslaved. It did have dominion over us. It was our default. We couldn't escape it. The reality is, though, we also loved it. But Jesus, in the gospel, frees us from it. And frees us to do what? To fight. He frees us to fight sin. Because although we've been freed from the power and the penalty of sin, we know that it's still present in our hearts and lives. One day it won't be. 
for now we have a battle to fight. As one author puts it, though sin is still present in our lives, being a Christian means we choose not to swim in it any longer. We don't choose to live there. We don't choose to dwell there. Free people fight sin. Free people fulfill the law, not in order to gain God's favour, but in light of it. So when you think baptism, think freedom. Think freedom. When you think baptism, think freedom. Your baptism symbolises a dramatic turning point in your life. Whereby you are forever free from the reign of sin. Eternal death and condemnation, the, the consequence of sin, is no longer your destiny. That's what baptism symbolises. It symbolises that inward change that marks a dramatic turning point in your life. So rejoice in that. Take heart in that. Your life is forever changed. Baptism equals freedom. But baptism also marks the beginning of a war. Of a lifelong battle against sin. A battle that because of Jesus and what he has done will end in victory. Maybe you think, I can't be bothered fighting that. That sounds too hard. Doesn't sound very fun. Sounds easier to just do what I want, to swim in sin. We need to remember what sin leads to. It leads to death. It leads to eternal punishment. Sin might provide us with fleeting pleasure now, but in the end it will lead both to earthly and eternal death and destruction. Being free from sin and choosing to go back to a life where we can battle it is like being free from prison, getting out through the gates into your, uh, a free life and choosing to climb back over the wall and back into your cell. That's what Paul is saying we shouldn't do, we mustn't do. He's saying it's nonsensical. Don't go back to your whole life. You were a slave. We've been freed to be changed. We've been freed to become what we were always created to be, made in the image and likeness of God. We still are that in our fallenness, but in his grace, God is remaking that image in us. We need to fight and to pursue being recreated in the image of Christ. We need to fight from the place of freedom. We can fight from a place of freedom. And to do that, to, to be changed, to pursue change, and to become more like Jesus, to fight sin, is to become truly human. To be made how we were always, to be how we were always made to be. To be remade in the image of God, to be truly happy, and to have real hope. So, if you're a Christian this morning, consider yourself free from the power of sin and rejoice in that. Giving into sin and temptation is no longer an inevitability. It doesn't have to be that way. The demands of the law no longer condemn us. Jesus met those demands and now he's freed us to keep them. Grace isn't a license for lawlessness, but know this. Even when we still mess up, that grace is sufficient to cover our present and future sin. Know that living in sin is senseless. Choosing to re-enter slavery when we've been free. So baptized people are free from sin. Baptized people battle sin. But how did we die to sin? Did we do that ourselves? 
that we met that happened? How did we die to sin? How did that status change? How did our status change from slave to sin to free people? Well, that's what verses 3 to 5 are about. Baptism is a sign that in Jesus, I'm free to live a changed life. Secondly, because he has buried my old life. If you look down. And here is where baptism really comes into the picture. Verses uh, two, uh, verses three onwards. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death. Baptism equals freedom. But baptism is also a funeral. Uh, I was joking with Sally at the back uh, this morning that I didn't actually intentionally wear white this morning. Sometimes we associate white with uh, a baptism. And in some ways it would have been appropriate for me to wear a black shirt this morning because there's an aspect in which baptism is like a funeral. We often treat baptisms as joyful events, and we should, by the way. They're significant um, turning points in our lives. But there's something about baptism that also signifies that something has died in us. And it's a good death. What died? If you look down at verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Our old self was buried. The person we used to be before Jesus was buried. The person who was in Adam, who was under the control of sin, that person has died. How? Verse 5 tells us, by being united to Jesus. Why does that need to happen? Because we cannot overcome sin and death on our own. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus does that for us, in our place. By faith, when we respond in faith to the gospel message, we are by the Spirit united to Christ. Or in the language of verse 3 here, we, we, we are baptized into Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that language? We are baptized into him. We're not baptized into isolation. We're not baptized and Jesus doesn't go, hey, on, off you go, see how you get on. He baptizes, we, we are joined to him in union with him. All that has now happened to him, all that is now true of him, is true of us, is credited to us. Here we have what is probably the most central doctrine in the life of the Christian, union with Christ. And let me just say, I, my prayer is that that is one of the big takeaways of this series. This is not ultimately a series about the church. It's firstly a series about being united uh, with Jesus and having communion with him and that that involves being part of the church but that should be the big takeaway union with Christ means that all that's happened to him is now credited to me it means all that's true of him is now true of us it's how all the eternal benefits that he's won for us on the cross come to us flow to us justification sanctification Reconciliation, redemption, adoption, resurrection. It's how all those things become ours. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. Our old life dies with him and he raises us to new life in him. And here's the big application here from Romans 6 with respect to that. 
And one of the big things that baptism signifies, in Christ, we really died to sin. It really happened. That burial really happened. As sure as Christ was buried physically, was raised to new life, so sure has that happened in our lives. It's not wishful thinking. As sure as Christ was physically buried, so sure are we that the power and the penalty of sin against us have been disarmed and buried forever. So in the midst of temptation, or, or doubt, or, or fear, here's what God wants us to do. Remember and consider ourselves dead to sin. Remember that even though Satan would have us think differently, sin no longer has control of us. There is a way out when we face temptation. There is a better way. So, remember your baptism. When was the last time you thought about it, if you are baptized? Remember your baptism. Consider yourself dead to sin. At one point in his life, the reformer Martin Luther was seeking refuge from persecution in the castle. He spent that time uh, translating the Bible into German. But because of what was happening to that time, it was to him at that time, it was also a time of deep doubt and discouragement for him. And do you know how he fought, or one of the ways he fought that doubt and discouragement? It was said that he could often be heard shouting from the castle gardens, I'm baptized! I'm baptized! Why was he doing that? Why was he using that as a source of assurance? Because he rightly saw his baptism as an objective reminder an embodiment of the promises of God to him and of the work of God in him. It's not that baptism in and of itself does anything special or magical, but it's what it signifies and symbolizes to us is what God has done in us, what God has promised to us. We'll get, in a minute, we'll get to them, well, why do we do it then if it doesn't really ultimately change anything? We'll get to that in a minute. But his, he saw his baptism rightly as an objective reminder of God's promises to him and of God's work in him. Your baptism is designed to serve as a reminder of the, the, the invisible internal work that God has done in you. It is designed to serve as a lasting witness that Jesus Christ, throughout your whole life, that Jesus Christ will always be your justification and sanctification, as one writer puts it. It is meant to serve, though it's done once, it's meant to serve as an lasting witness for your whole life that Jesus will always be your justification and sanctification. And that reality which baptism points to is meant to provide us then with motivation to obey. If you skip down to verses 11 and 12, you see here, he's told us, told us all this truth. You're like, Paul, it's just loads of doctrine, loads of, loads of heady stuff, okay, so what am I supposed to do with all this? Well, we need to be reminded of these truths so that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. What is our motivation to fight sin and pursue holiness? Is to consider who we are, what's happened to us, and what's true of us in Christ. Why do we need to know that in order to fight sin? Because our sin still has power and control over us. What motivation would we have for holiness? What hope would we have in the battle against sin? 
Yet in Christ we die to sin and are baptized and remind us of that. One of the reasons I think we don't view our baptism in this way, the way Romans 6 would have us remember it, is that because often we primarily view our baptism as my decision to follow Jesus, as me going public about my faith in front of my friends and family. That, that, that is a big part of baptism. It requires a response, a profession of faith, importantly so. But it's also primarily, it's, it's really primarily about the one we put our faith in. Baptism is primarily meant to point us to who we are in Christ, to our union with him, to what Jesus has done for us. That's how you should think about your baptism. What Jesus has done to me and in me and for me, not what I have done in response. Why do we need to think of it that way? Because if it's all about our profession of faith, what happens when our faith gets weak? Baptism doesn't serve as a source of assurance for us then. We need to look to the one in whom we put our faith in. If you think about it, the act of baptism itself kind of helps us do that. We are basically totally passive. You fold your arms, you fall back. You don't do anything really. You do contribute your profession, but that's all you contribute. An old Baptist confession defines baptism as this, which kind of points to that reality as well. It says it on the screen there, it'll be on the screen for you. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. A little bit of old English here, okay? To be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him. What it's saying there is that it has been biblically and historically understood that baptism is first a sign to the person being baptized. It's first meant to be a sign of what God has done for us and in us. In his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, that's union, union with Christ, of remission of sins and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So next time you face temptation to sin, or you're caught in sin, remember who you are in Christ. Remember your baptism. Consider yourself dead to whatever it is that's tempting you. Whatever it is that's tempting you in that moment, Whatever it might be, consider yourself, I am dead to that. That is my old life. I don't go there. I don't dig that up. I flee from it. I fight it. I am dead to that. It no longer has to have control over my heart and in my life. It is not inevitable that that is something I give into. Consider your beautiful life-giving union with Jesus, which is so much better than anything in this world will tempt us and live the new life that he's called you to that's what we see next the new life that he's called us to baptism is a sign that in jesus i'm free to live a changed life because he's buried my old life and raised me to walk a new life you look down in verses four to five we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Hey, the burial wasn't the end. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So through union with Christ, we've gone into the grave with him. We're no longer slaves to sin. Sin no longer has a stranglehold in our lives. And we are raised to new life. He has done that 
in order that we might walk in new life. He resurrects us to walk in new life, to live differently. Perhaps you're a Christian here this morning and you've majorly messed up in that walk. Or maybe right now you're wrestling with a certain sin. And it's making you doubt whether God is really changing you, if you're really walking that new walk. Perhaps it's not necessarily a spiritual struggle, but a physical struggle. Your body is weak and sick. Your soul feels heavy and it's hurting due to the effect of sin on your life or on those around you. The, the future seems bleak and uncertain. Here's what verse 5 reminds you of. Here's what your baptism so beautifully pictures. Verse 5, look down with me. If you have, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like if we have been united with him through faith, all that he has promised of us and to us will happen. If we have been united with Christ through faith, by the Spirit, that union cannot be broken. That means the struggle with sin and suffering will one day cease. That means he is and he will change us. Yes, we have to participate in that. Yes, we have to fight, but he will change us. means we no longer have to obey sin. That life is a hopeful life. And not only do we have hope for the future, that he'll do that in the end, but we have hope for the present. Though we fully await that physical status of resurrected, our spiritual status has already changed to resurrected. It's already changed, guaranteeing that we will one day have our resurrected bodies free from sin and suffering. Our past, our present, and our future are dependent on, defined by, and bound up with Jesus. And based on what happened really and historically 2,000 years ago. That's what's true of you if you're in Christ. If you have repented of your sins, if you've turned away from them and put your faith solely in Jesus, all of that's true. So we must bring our thinking and our feeling in line with that truth. We get to bring our thinking and feeling in line with those realities. What does this newness of life look like? Here's a bunch of new things. We have a new walk. That's what we thought about. We live differently. Our character and behavior changes. We become more like Jesus. We obey his commands. And we're able to do that because we've been given a new heart. Empowered by the Spirit with his commands written on them so we can now obey them. We've been given a new, a new walk, a new heart. And that new heart comes with new desires. Yes, there's still simple desires in there to be battled, but we have new desires. We are able to love God and neighbor. We have a new identity. As he's united us to himself, he's brought us into his family. We become children of God. We become the bride of Christ. We have a new identity. We have a new name. Matthew 28. What are we baptized into in Matthew 28? Into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You get a new name. You get a new name as a child of God. 
You get a new family, the church. Union with Jesus, as we've already thought about, union with Jesus equals union with his body, the church. You get a new eternal family. Received into community, and you get a new future. Sin and death no longer have dominion over you. We're being changed. We can look forward with certainty and with hope. We can look forward to our future home in the new heavens and the new earth with a resurrected body. That's what all of this pictures. So consider these things, rejoice in these things, and let these things be the motivation for continued obedience to Jesus. This is what baptism signifies. Baptism is a sign that in Jesus I've been free to live a changed life because he's buried my old life and raised me to walk in to walk a new life. Let that be the primary thing that you walk away with here this morning, that new joy and reality in your heart to spur you on to obedience. What else, though, does the Bible teach us on baptism? Since we're in this kind of series, it's helpful for us as a church to draw some other things in. So we're going to explore four things here. And there's no clock up at the back, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot to put my watch on this morning. Firstly, baptism is a command of Jesus. Kind of simple, but it's, it's worth stating that, not overlooking that. Matthew 28, he gave that command to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. There's the newness of life. There's the new life. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the, Jesus commands us to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them. And implicit in that is a, is a command for us to be baptized ourselves. It's a key first step in becoming a disciple of Jesus. And of course, Jesus in his life set that example, didn't he? He identified with us by going through baptism. We see it as well in Acts 22, 38. The command of Jesus is then reiterated by the Apostle Peter, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Secondly, baptism is a sign of the new covenant. So baptism is a command of Jesus, and it's a sign of the new covenant. We've explored covenants back in Genesis, if you can remember that far back. Covenant, uh, it, it, covenants are the means, they're kind of like the spine of the Bible, they're the means by which God makes his promises, and they're the means by which he brings about his kingdom. And they have signs that accompany them to make the promises and benefits of them visible. They're like a visible word. So if you're a picture person and not a reader, praise the Lord for baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? They are visible signs that embody physically what is promised in the covenant. Baptism along with the Lord's Supper are the two new covenant signs that show to our eyes what the word of the gospel tells us to our ears. They embody the gospel offer, the, the gospel promise in physical form. Baptism is the, the initial sign and the Lord's Supper is the ongoing sign. Uh, Guy Sam Renahan says in his books that in the covenant of works, the trees made the promises of life and death visible. In the Noahic covenant, the rainbow makes the promise of preservation visible. In the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision makes the promise of Canaan and the threat of punishment visible. In the Mosaic covenant, the Passover and sacrifices made the promises of God visible. And then in the new covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper make the promises visible. 
They are God's word to us, his gospel promises in visible form. Or as one person puts it helpfully, it's the gospel in 3D. It's the gospel in 3D. Why water? Why do we use water for that sign? So wine and bread, we kind of we kind of get that. Body and blood of Jesus. Why do we use water in baptism? Well, first Peter 3 sheds light on that. Water represents in the Bible going through judgment, salvation through judgment. Water in the Bible represents judgment, and then as we go through the water, we are coming through judgment and being saved from it. That's what going down into the water and coming back up represents. From the flood in Genesis 7 to the parting of the Red Sea, we see that pattern throughout the Bible. God's people come through judgment, through the waters of judgment, and out the other side by the salvation of God. Symbolizes going from death to life. So that's why we use water. How do we baptize? The Bible teaches us in its implicit in the New Testament we do that by immersion. We see that implicit in places like Matthew 3 and Acts 8. And it also um, best betrays that union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, people disagree a little bit over this. Okay, we're going to get into that in a minute. Move is, uh, is important, but it's not more important though than the subject of baptism, which we'll also get to. That's why we practice immersion. It's implicit in the New Testament. It best betrays that union with Christ. And just to clarify, I mentioned it earlier, but just to clarify that the water, bread, and the wine... They're not inherently powerful to save you. In and of themselves, they don't regenerate you or contribute to your salvation. Um, as I was a kid one time, I, uh, I was, uh, there's a place in Norman called Castlewell Castle. There's a lake there. there were, I was at something where there were baptisms happening. I was a very young child. And I was walking, there's steps down into the, the lake. I was walking along, along the, the steps as someone was being baptized, and I fell into the water. Did I get baptized? Did I all of a sudden become a Christian then? No. That's not what, uh, the, the, the mere symbols don't do that. Yet we are commanded to participate in them and, and we should not refuse or neglect them. They're not essential to salvation. The thief on the cross shows us that. He had no opportunity to be baptized or take the Lord's Supper. He still went to paradise. The difference would be if we chose, chose to refuse them or neglect them. So they're, they're symbols yeah, although they are symbols and there's nothing inherently kind of magical about them, when accompanied with the word of the gospel and received by faith based on what they symbolize, they become powerful signs of the new covenant of grace. It's kind of like wedding rings, right? A ring in and of itself, if I went to give you this ring now, my wedding ring to you, it's just a ring. It doesn't really mean anything. But when you add the context of vows, and a marriage ceremony, it takes on a whole different, it takes on a much more significant symbology. They become powerful tokens of the promises made in that moment. Another thing to say here is that these are signs that we participate in, as we've mentioned, they're two-way. They're God's word to us, but they're also our word to God and to those around us. The way we participate is through a credible profession of faith. As elders and as parents, we have a responsibility to wisely shepherd and discern. So as we're parents with kids and as elders of the church, we have the responsibility to wisely shepherd and discern what a credible profession of faith looks like. 
in a way that doesn't take baptism lightly, but also accounts for the simplicity of faith. Uh, we, one of the things we want to do as a church as elders is help parents figure that out because that's not necessarily an easy or straight thing for them to do. So come and speak to us. We want to help you navigate that. Also to say signs are meant to help us fight sin that we thought about, but they're also a source of assurance. The rainbow that we still see is meant to assure us that God's promises stand. Wedding rings are meant to assure us of the promises of life that we've made. God has given us physical signs to assure us and strengthen our faith. That comes back to the why do we do a thing? Why do we do the physical? Yes, he commands us, but why did he give us physical things to do? In order to strengthen our faith, in order to add, not add to the gospel, but to give us something physical and tangible to accompany what we hear. John Calvin, the reformer, says this, Baptism and Lord's Supper are an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences promises of his good work towards us in order to strengthen the weakness of our faith. In the way a husband tells his wife he loves her, he also expresses that by holding her hand. Both are necessary. The words alone wouldn't be as comforting. The symbols alone don't really mean much. But together, they provide a powerful source of assurance. Baptism is a command of Jesus, it's a sign of the new covenant, and it's for believers only. Let me just wade in two centuries worth of debate and discussion here. For believers only. The New Testament teaches that baptism is a sign to be given only to those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus. And this is taught in places like Acts 2, Acts 8, and Acts 18. Mark Boys, if you remember a few weeks ago, read Acts 18 to us. Let me just repeat some of the verses that he read. Acts 18, at Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, so he's believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Okay, that's one of the, what we would call a doctrinal distinctive of our church. We practice believers' baptism, that is baptism upon profession of faith, or you might hear it called credo-baptism. Why do some churches baptize infants then? And that's particularly true in our context here with the historic national churches of Pedro Baptist Church. It comes down really to how we understand the relationship between those covenants that I mentioned earlier and the fulfillment of how God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. Maybe, I, one of the, the, maybe to try and get to the heart of it without spending too much time on this, key difference, a key question is, who makes up the people of God? In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, who makes up the people of God? And therefore, who should the sign of the covenant be applied to? That's where the differences come. Graciously and charitably held. As those who practice believer baptism, we believe that in the New Covenant, that the people of God constitute believers only who practice what's called regenerate church membership. Since baptism is a command of Jesus, and is so central and significant with respect to salvation, with re- respect to the definition of a church, with respect to the marking out of a believer in the world, with respect to church membership, it's an issue which any given church must make a decision on. Any local congregation must make a decision on this. And a commitment to the authority of Scripture binds our consciences in this area that baptism is for believers only, and therefore is a prerequisite in this church to membership. 
However, all that said, where other churches might differ in their practice of baptism, yet the gospel is still proclaimed faithfully, and the whole counsel of God's word is proclaimed faithfully, we can absolutely consider them faithful brothers and sisters in Christ and friends in the Great Commission. Okay? You might have questions about some of that, come and speak to me afterwards. I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said in the centuries of faith. Final thing. Baptism is a mark of the church. Just want to spend some time connecting baptism to the church. It's a mark of the church. It defines the church along with true preaching. This is what's been biblically and historically understood to be the defining marks of what a church is. What's the difference between a group of Christians who meet down the park and a church? What's the difference between a, a true church and a false church? Along with true preaching, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the biblical and historical things that mark out a true church. So there's two marks, the right preaching and faithful administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is generated by the, the pure preaching of God's word and it's then distinguished and contained by baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's marked off. The, the, the gospel generates believers and then they are marked off by baptism initially and Lord's Supper basis. Baptism and the Lord's Supper mark, mark those things out, mark believers out. And Acts 2 really is a helpful place to go with this. Okay? You see the flow of Acts chapter 2. Preaching creates converts and in response they get baptized and then they're added to the church where they break bread together. Baptism is a mark of the church. It defines the church. It's something therefore that is done by the church. Yeah, again, this isn't something I can get into huge detail, but in Matthew 16 and 18, we see something taught, which is called the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom are the authority and the ability to declare who's in and who's out. The pattern of Matthew 16 and 18 is that those keys are initially given to the apostles and then to the gathered church under the leadership of her elders. Therefore, the authority to baptize, that's the that's declaring who's in, lies with the gathered local church under the leadership of her elders. That means a baptism should normally take place under the authority and in the presence of the gathered local church. I say normally because Acts 8, where Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, kind of provides an anomaly to that. Maybe we think of frontline mission context where there is no church, but normally baptism should be done in the context under the authority of the local church. Baptism is how you join the church as well. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul there is talking primarily about how the spirit baptized. Baptized by the spirit we are joined to the church. But in using baptism language, he of course implies actual baptism as well. It's it's how we identify ourselves with the church, as we've already thought of. It's how we put on the team colours. It's how we get the family name. Inwardly, by our regeneration, the Christian joins the universal church. But in the physical, outward sign of baptism, they join the gathered local church. Again, if you want to talk about any of that or think through any of that, I'm here to speak. Here's the big takeaway really from this morning is this. Baptism is a sign 
of an internal, radical, gracious, eternity-altering transformation in our hearts and lives. It ultimately points us away from ourselves to Jesus. And it reminds us of who we now are in him, by faith. Our lives are now bound up with him for eternity. That means we are free to live a different life, a new life. So this morning, rejoice in that, remember that, and let's live like it. Let's live as baptised people. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning of what you've done in our lives, in our hearts, the radical transformation and freedom that you have worked in us because of Jesus. Help that to cause our hearts to rejoice and our affections to be set upon Jesus more and more so that we might not get into sin, that we might not live in sin but fight sin and walk in newness of life. Father, I pray for those who are already baptized here, Father, that that would serve as a source of assurance and for those who aren't, Father, that, that they would consider that, for those who aren't Christians, that they would consider firstly the transformation that it symbolizes. Father, we're unworthy of this transformation in our hearts and lives, but yet you should graciously do it. Help us to respond by faith. In his name we pray. Amen.